Well, welcome. Welcome here to our Good Friday service here at MCBC. If we want to understand Jesus, we have to consider the cross. We must look at the cross on which he died. We must contemplate his death for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Today, of all days, we focus on his death. As Jesus was dying, he spoke seven sentences that have traditionally been called the seven last words of Christ. None of the Gospels record all seven of them. Matthew and Mark give us one. Luke gives us three, and John writes down the final three. This morning we will reflect on these seven words, and they will serve as our guide this morning to help us to consider the mystery of Christ's death for us. A number of the readings today are adapted from pastor and author Mark Roberts. But it's my prayer today that you and I might be filled with gratitude. At the end of our hour together, might we say, thanks be to God for his amazing, wonderful gift, the death poured out for us. Oh God, our Father, today in remembrance and awe, we tread the holy ground of Calvary this place of abandonment that has become the scene of adoration, this place of suffering that has become the source of our peace, this place of violence that has become the battlefield on which love is victorious. Merciful God, as we relive the events of this day, It is with awe that we count again the cost of our salvation. Words cannot be found to utter our thanksgiving. Accept our adoration. In Jesus' name, amen. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there, along with the criminals one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It makes sense that the first word of Jesus from the cross is a word of forgiveness. That's the point of the cross after all. Jesus is dying so that we might be forgiven for our sins, so that we might be reconciled to God for eternity. But the forgiveness of God through Christ does not come only to those who don't know what they are doing when they sin. In the mercy of God, we receive his forgiveness even when we do know what is wrong. God chooses to wipe away our sins, not because we have some convenient excuse and not because we have tried hard to make up for them, but because he is God of amazing grace with mercies that are new every morning. As we hear the words, Father, forgive them, 
may we understand that we too are forgiven through Christ. As John writes in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Because Christ died on the cross for us, we are cleansed from all wickedness, from every last sin. We are united with God the Father as his beloved children. We are free to approach his throne of grace with our needs and concerns. God has removed our sins as far from us as the East is from the West. What great news! So, do you really believe God has forgiven you your sins? It may be easy to speak of God's forgiveness, even to ask for it and to thank Him for it. But do you really believe that you are forgiven? Do you experience the freedom that comes from the assurance that you have been cleansed from your sins? Even though you have put your faith in Him and confessed your sins, do you live as sin still has power over you? Do you try to prove yourself to Him as if you might be able to earn more forgiveness? May we respond to our Savior by saying, All praise be to you, Lord Jesus, for your matchless forgiveness. Amen. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Then the one criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is strange to hear these words coming from Jesus as he hung on the cross. It's hard to imagine a place further from paradise than Golgotha, a barren, the place of the skull, a home for suffering and death. What could be further away from the lush garden of paradise, an oasis of refreshment and life? Though the Gospels don't record it, we can't help but imagine the sneering laughter that greeted Jesus' promise of paradise. There he was, horrendously suffering, vulnerably naked, helplessly dying, yet he promised paradise. How is it that Jesus could offer such hope to a dying criminal? Who gave him the keys of the garden? By what authority did he open the gates of heaven? And what made this crucified criminal so special? Why did Jesus promise paradise to him? Was it his recognition of your innocence? Or was it his urgent request, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Nothing suggests that the man to whom Jesus offered hope had done much to deserve favor. He hadn't followed Jesus. He hadn't left everything behind to be his disciple. He wasn't suffering for the sake of righteousness, but because of his crimes. Even he admitted that he had been justly condemned. Did he know who Jesus really was? Did he even realize what he was asking? I doubt it. Rather, he was merely a dying man with a desperate plea, Jesus, remember me. In the end, I'm not much different from the one who cried out to you in desperation. 
I might not realize my sorry state. I might live as if I'm in control. But in truth, I have nothing to offer you except my simple childlike faith, my trust that you can save me. My fervent hope that your mercy outweighs my sin. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We can hold on to this promise. God's goodness will not stop after we die. And Jesus will be there with us. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. As Jesus was dying, his mother was among those who had remained with him. Most of the male disciples had fled, with the exception of one whom the fourth gospel calls the the disciple he loved. We can't be exactly sure of the identity of this beloved disciple, though many interpreters believe he is John, who is also the one who is behind the writing of this gospel. No matter who believed, no matter who the beloved disciple was, it's clear that Jesus was forging a relationship between this disciple and his mother, one in which the disciple would take care of Mary financially and many other ways. Jesus wanted to make sure she would be in good hands after his death. The presence of Mary at the cross adds both humility and horror to the scene. We are reminded that Jesus was a real human being, a man who had once been a boy who had been carried in the wound of his mother. Even as he was dying on the cross as the Savior of the world, Jesus was also a son, a role he didn't neglect in his last moments. When we think about the crucifixion of Jesus from the perspective of the mother, our horror increases dramatically. The death of a child is one of of most painful of all parental experiences. To watch one's beloved child experience the extreme torture of crucifixion must have been unbearably terrible. We're reminded of of the prophecy that Simeon, we we are reminded of the promise of Simeon shortly after Jesus' birth when he said to Mary, and a sword will pierce your soul. This scene helps us not to glorify or spiritualize the the crucifixion of Jesus. He was a real man. Flesh, true flesh and blood, a son of a mother, dying with unbelievable agony. His suffering was altogether real, and he did it for you and for me. Woman, here is your son. Here is your mother.
And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus was dying on the cross, he echoed the beginning of Psalm 22, which reads, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away from me when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice but I find no relief. In the words of the psalmist, Jesus found a way to express the cry of his heart. Why had God abandoned him? Why did his father turn his back on Jesus in his moment of great agony? This side of heaven, we never fully know what Jesus was experiencing In this moment, was he asking his question because in the mystery of his incarnational suffering, he didn't know why the Father has abandoned him, or was his crying not so much a question as an expression of profound agony, or was it both? What do you know that Jesus entered into the hell of separation from the Father God? The Father abandoned him because Jesus took upon himself the penalty of penalty for our sin. In that excruciating moment, he experienced some far more horrible than physical pain. The beloved Son of God knew what it was like to be rejected by the Father. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father abandoned the Son for our sake for the salvation of the world. But can I really grasp the mystery and the majesty of this truth? Hardly. As Martin Luther once said, God forsaken God, who can understand it? Yet even my minuscule grasp of this reality call me to confession. The humility, the worship, to adore, to adoration, adoration. Have you taken time to consider that Jesus was abandoned by the Father or that you might not be? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
As we ponder these words of Jesus, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, on a literal level, your thirst makes perfect sense. Given all you had endured, no doubt your thirst was burning bitterly. And as John points out in his gospel, your request enabled the fulfillment of the psalm that spoke of vinegar being offered to the one drowning in troubles. Yet I marvel at the irony of your asking for something to drink. After all, your first miracle in the Gospel of John involved turning water into wine, providing liquid refreshment at a wedding. And then you had a conversation with a Samaritan woman after you had asked her for a drink. You told her that you offered living water that quenches all thirst. Not long thereafter, you invited all who are thirsty to come to you and drink. Now, on the cross, you are thirsty, Lord. You who had the power to turn water into wine have chosen not to quench your own thirst. You who offered fresh, living water chose to drink the rancid vinegar of death. You who invited the thirsty to come now suffer severe dehydration. Why? So that through your deprivation we might enjoy the new wine of the kingdom? So that through your death we might drink of eternal life? So that through your thirst our parched souls might be quenched? Not only do you offer living water, but also the cup of the new covenant in your blood. From this cup, we drink deeply of your forgiveness. Through this cup, we are drawn into intimate, everlasting relationship with God. Thank you, dear Jesus, for being thirsty so that I might be satisfied. Thank you for being empty so that I might be filled. Thank you for dying, so that I might live through you. Amen. I am thirsty. Jesus said, It is finished. We often can feel overwhelmed by all the tasks we have to do. There's always more housework, more contacts to reach out to, more to read, more homework, more needs to respond to, and one more job to do. For us, it's as though our work never really is finished. We may want to pursue a level of physical fitness, but there's always another level to attain. We never quite feel like we have made it. We may make it our goal to pursue spiritual growth, but we see how hard it is to forgive others, or even to forgive ourselves. We make a commitment to not get angry with another person, but then we lose our cool again. We decide that we will not be consumed with judging others, and then we find ourselves returning to the same old patterns. We want to present ourselves as a finished 
product. But then we see our sins and weaknesses. We see ourselves as an unfinished product. Just as the Apostle Paul writes, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now stop to consider Jesus on the cross. As he approached his death, he said, It is finished. Jesus was not saying, This is the end, or it's over. Instead, he was saying, It is completed. It is perfected. He has done what he has come into the world to do. When we look at Christ's work on the cross, we know that what he has done is enough. We can add nothing else to our salvation. His work of salvation is complete. There is nothing left to do. It is finished. It's a triumphant call of hope. Whatever feels unfinished within us is triumphed by the sufficient, decisive, and all-enduring work of Jesus. Through this one man, eternal life is offered to all who will believe. It is finished. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. These words of Jesus are based on Psalm 31.5, where we read, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, Lord, my faithful God. These are beautiful words of trust. But the circumstances in which Jesus prayed this prayer were anything but safe and secure. So in the midst of pain and mocking, suffering and agony, Jesus entrusts himself into the hands of the Father. Someone has said the Christian life is lived in between My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. One word acknowledges the reality of loneliness, abandonment, and despair. But the last word from the cross involves trust, release, and letting go. All of us want to take control of life. And we live with the illusion that we can control all the things that will happen to us. We are blessed with the choices that we can make, but for all of us, we will encounter significant moments where we are not in charge. A loved one becomes ill. Troubles in the workplace mean that your job is not guaranteed. And stressful relationships arise. So then, we pray a prayer expecting God to offer a quick fix to our problems. Before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. He preferred the will of the Father for him. And this attitude prevailed in the last word from the cross. Jesus did what we must do 
He gave his life back to the one who gives to him and to us our life and breath. We cannot manipulate God, but we can trust him with all things that come our way. This is not a prayer that we hold in reserve for our deathbed, but we pray it when we get out of bed in the morning, trusting God for all that comes our way that day. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Seven words. Seven words spoken one Friday. Seven words that jot up on the plains of human history, kind of like Mount Everest in the desert. Seven words that have been deciphered, dissected, and debated now for over 2,000 years. What does this day really mean? It's the door through which eternity enters into humanity's darkest caverns. It's the day that Jesus descends into the deepest abyss and and as he goes, he leaves behind seven words like anchor points for his followers to hold on to. What is it that Good Friday really means? For the life that's blackened with failure, Friday means purpose. For the heart that is scarred with futility, Friday means forgiveness. And for the soul that is stuck looking only at this side of that long, dark tunnel of death, Friday means deliverance. Seven words. One Friday. What will you do with those seven words? Our service ends, but let me invite you, if you wish, to linger. We'll leave the room quiet. We'll leave the lights low. Maybe in your own way and in your own time you want to make your way back to one of the crosses. Our elders will be there and they'd be happy to stand with you in silence or or to whisper to God with you in prayer. 
But don't leave until the real seeds of Good Friday are planted deep in your life. But when you do leave, I hope you leave from this day that is dark and shadowy with the anticipation of coming back and holding on to the bright hope of Easter dawn, Sunday morning. For as it was true when the words were first spoken, it it has always been true and will remain so. The Lord blesses and keeps his people. He watches over them and protects them and his face radiates with joy because of them. And so on this holy day, on this Easter weekend, may God be kind and gracious to you. Give you hope and peace. Amen.